which is huge. I mean, it's like a man. It, it's big. Kane, son. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study. Not to bring back. But to wipe them out. That's the plan. You have my word on it. All right, I'm in. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I'm Patrick, and I'm joined tonight by... Christian Motzka. Andy Yeekerl. And a returning super guest who is backed by popular request and demand, uh, Alex White. Alex, how you doing? Hey, nice to be here. Nice to have you. And a very special friend slash resource of Alex's. And I'm going to go ahead and hand it over to Alex to uh, introduce tonight's other special guest. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I'm constantly sort of told about the cold forging into Charybdis are that the science is really good. And so I really thought that it would be a good idea to bring out my my secret weapon, my science consultant, uh, Molly DeRozier, uh, who is just an absolutely wonderful collaborator and somebody that I have enjoyed just extensively consulting with on many books, uh, not the least of which are the Alien books. Hi, thanks for having me. Welcome. Uh, Welcome. So this episode, of course, came about because while we had Alex on the last time, which was just about a, a month and a half ago, we were kind of talking about some ideas about the life cycle of the creature and the metabolic cycle of the creature. And this idea started forming where we have Andy, who is an actual science teacher, who's part of our hosting staff. And Alex has this amazing friend, Lolly DeRozier, who's also a science teacher and, you know, a great resource. And we were like, well, what if we actually pose some of these questions to people who know what they're <laughs> talking about and we can have a conversation about it? So before we get into that tonight, uh, Lolly, I'm just curious, how did you get involved with this work? Like, what's your what's your alien journey look like? So I've been a fan of Alien since I was old enough to sneak into the movie when I was supposed to be watching something else. Uh, and I, you know, it's one of those, the, any of the Alien movies when I was a kid, as I was clicking through late at night on cable, if it was on, I would always stop and watch it. Um, Alien is, I, you know, I grew up with Star Wars and Star Trek, but Alien was the first depiction of space I saw that was scary. And that really intrigued me, uh, especially growing up a child in the 80s when, you know, the the parenting method uh, that was in fashion then was to terrorize your children about all the horrible things that could happen to them. It really intrigued me, this idea that space is not nice, that you could have the best intentions, you could have the best technology, you can do everything correctly, and it will still kill you. And so I grew up always a fan of the of the franchise. And then uh, I met Alex through um, some con work. I was on some panels. Um, Dragon Con in Atlanta has a great science track. And so um, through a friend of a friend, I, I managed to get on some panels to talk about things like the biology of vampires or like chemical warfare and Wonder Woman and things like that. And so Alex and I met through a mutual friend. And just, you know, late night conversations evolved into quick phone calls. Hey, I have a question for you. And, you know, can you tell me about this? And so we just chat. And, you know, before we knew it, it became kind of a regular thing. Absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite things about that that time, I, I remember, uh, you know, you asked me something about the alien, which I had never considered before, which is how, how does it accumulate biomass so quickly? And I was like, I don't think there's a canonical answer for that. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that's one of the that's one of the tricky things about Alien. And I think Prometheus. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I was blanking on that that movie that we love to hate so much. That <laughs> uh, there's there's a scene in that movie that has that really disregards like the laws of the natural laws of the universe with regards to accumulating biomass. Like when I 
think about that scene in particular, like just the amount of heat that would be generated, the amount of energy that would be required. Uh, it's a tricky problem for for aliens that that they kind of just gloss over. So I really appreciate any attempt to reconcile that. Excuse me, Lolly, you're mentioning heat being generated. Uh, this was uh, I just uploaded an episode about two hours ago where I kind of go hard in the corner of there would have to be a lot of heat coming off of the alien. And that's why it's so steamy on the Nostromo uh, all the time, especially during Brett's death sequence. I think what I'm hearing tonight from an actual science teacher uh, listeners is that I was 100% right. And my theory is valid. Would you say that there would be a lot of heat put off with a rapid growth cycle like that? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Very hot bodied. Our aliens are. I uh, feel vindicated. Thank you very much. Uh, Andy, I know you, you had some topics that you kind of wanted to talk about tonight. Do you, you want to sort of throw one of those out there and we can kind of get the ball rolling? Yeah, I was um, when you titled this, you know, the biology of, of fear, um, I, I figured there's a lot of ways we could go with this. Um, but I'm thinking to just kind of like focus on the life cycle, because I know there's a lot of sort of confusion about even just from the movies themselves about what's going on in terms of the life cycle, what the face huggers actually do in terms of implantation. Um, so I kind of wanted to throw the question out there on just getting the biology of that down first, and then maybe going into things like, um, you know, where do the eggs come from? Is there, you know, can there be other sources of reproduction other than host parasitism that kind of thing so um just getting it down to like what happens when that face hugger attaches i know in cold forge it's i know in the movies they talk about an embryo implantation but i know that that's um not that's oversimplified in terms of what's actually happening. So I wanted to kind of pose the question of let's just clarify to the audience which, what happens. Which movie? Which movie did they talk about an embryo? I'm, well, I'm, I think I'm actually I think in 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 Aliens when Ripley is sort of like guessing, you know, when she uh, as far as she knows, oh, in Aliens right. she says, yeah, yeah. Right. When she says they they must have implanted some sort of embryo, because that's all she knows at this point. She just knows Cain mm -hmm. came back with something inside. Also, though, Bishop picks up the clipboard next to the facehugger and says that the, the facehugger was moved after embryo implant implementation right. implantation. After embryo implantation on whatever the, the poor victim was who then died. So the scientists at Hadley's Hope felt there was a, there was an embryo right. that was implanted by the facehugger so just saying that which but that tracks you know given right. how fast it grows right uh that tracks that if you only have a matter of hours from when the facehugger falls off to when the chest bursher comes out and then a few hours after that we have a fully grown alien what are we calling it i know i know alex hates xenomorph we call it snatchers Grabbers. XX one twenty one. Yeah, XX one two one. You know, given given that we only have, you know, it's such a truncated period of time. Uh, when when by the time they examine the person, get them in the MRI or whatever, they would see something that has significant growth. So it tracks that they would look at that and be like, "Oh, that's an embryo." You know that I feel like that would be a very easy mistake to make. I maintain that always maintain that what we're seeing is an alternation of generations. We're seeing a sexual and an asexual reproductive form. And this is something that we actually see in biology on earth. So we see that in really simple things like mosses, right? So they have, uh, you know, the green lush carpety moss that you see uh, that actually will 
or that's a sexually reproducing form, there's males and females. And they will exchange sperm and implants into an egg. And then a little brown stalk grows out of the top with a little pod on the end. And that's the asexual form. And it will, that little pod will open and spores will drop to the ground and grow more sexually reproducing forms. We see this in jellyfish. Uh, jellyfish have polyp forms, like kind of an anemone, and then they have free swimming forms like a medusa. And those medusoids are sexually reproducing and the polyp forms are asexually reproducing. So this is not something that's uncommon at all. So that's what we're seeing. We have, you know, the adult, like the queen. Uh, I was listening to one of your episodes where y'all were struggling uh, with what to call the place where the egg comes out. Uh, it's an ovipositor. It's not a cloaca. It's an ovipositor. Uh, <laughs> so we have uh, uh, an adult that's reproducing uh, and and you have several stages of reproduction, but they don't necessarily have to be sexual. In fact, none of them have to be sexual. Have we ever seen xenomorphs mating, grabbers mating? I don't think we ever have. We're assuming that there's a sexually reproducing form, but there doesn't have to be. It could all just be parthenogenetic. I think everybody's wondering if they've seen xenomorphs mating. Yes, I think we're, yeah, stuck now on we're that. all thinking about it. We're like, <laughs> Lolly, if if you're saying where the egg comes out of the queen's actual body is the ovipositor, then what is the gigantic structure that she's able to separate herself from that that kind of looks like a large intestine that the egg goes through? What would we call that then? That would probably just be the ovary. So we actually see that in queen termites. Okay. That's if you want to, if you want to see an example of that in real life, you can Google uh, queen termite queens and they have a very similar structure. So it's kind of like a little assembly line, you know, the immature eggs would be at the top near the abdomen. And then as they kind of move down their little like pulsing peristaltic path, they mature. And then when they get to the bottom, But given that the alien is a a quickly adapting creature, it's possible that an egg that comes directly from the queen's ovipositor could still be viable, just would need longer to somehow mature. (laughs) I see where you're going with this. Yeah. Uh, so like if it was like, so if the queen was separated from the ovipositor, but there's still a bunch of eggs in there, well, that's hard to say. Um, Andy, this is not my, the hormones are not my area of expertise, Andy. I don't know if you can chime in here, but the, you know, there's probably, I would assume that if there's a long period of time from when the egg is fertilized or it becomes viable to when it's actually deposited, there's probably like some hormonal cues or triggers that are happening along the way, just like you would see in any other kind of embryonic development. Like it's, you know, when embryos develop, when eggs develop, when fetuses develop, they, they don't just, you don't just switch them on and then they go, you know, it's not like a reverse shrinky dink where it just goes until it's done. Uh, they have very specific chemical hormonal triggers along the way that do very specific things. Right. So there would be like certain external cues that if something's happening externally, um, hormones might be triggered to produce some sort of action. So if the queen has then separated herself and is in a situation where she like sees all of her eggs being destroyed, that might prompt production. Is that what you're getting at Christian of a certain egg she can deposit later? A hundred percent. That's where I'm going with this. (laughs) (laughs) But so am I hearing that maybe you, you refer to it as the, the ovaries, the, the big tube thing. Is this possibly the aliens better preparing their eggs for the environment that they've now found themselves in? Would that be what the hormones would be doing? I guess it's mm-hmm. actually a larger question is given, given what we know about this alien, why does it need to put something inside a living creature to then be birthed from that creature? In, in later movies, we're, we're given to believe that it takes on aspects of its original host. So there seems to be this adaptation aspect built into the alien where, sure, you could just make an alien, you know, grow up and, and be a, a killing machine. But by putting it inside a living thing or possibly putting it through this extra process to make the eggs more adapted, they're taking whatever this environment is and and 
building it into making themselves better. That's just a hypothesis. Go teach. Okay, so, so it's interesting, the idea of adaptation. Um, the, like, genetics are a blueprint for the way that structures develop and the way that physiology works. So from an evolutionary perspective, if the alien is a creature that goes into different environments and, and uses the organisms that are already there to reproduce there, it's not really doing any adapting at all. It's leveraging the genetic adaptations that already exist in the organisms that evolved in that environment, in the organisms that are already living in that environment. Because if they evolved in that environment, then they're the best suited for that environment to survive. So it's just co-opting the genes for the physiological structures that it needs to survive for kidneys, for hearts, for lungs, for, you know, skeletal structures. That information is already there. It's just inserting itself like a retrovirus. It's inserting itself into that genetic code and just hijacking all of that genetic material. That's number one. So, so it's not as if the queen is making any conscious decisions about what it needs its eggs to do, what it needs its offspring to do. That information is already there in the environment for the organisms that evolve there naturally. The other thing would be the energy. I would think, you know, this gets back to this idea of how they grow so fast. You know, the is it possible that it's kind of like what butterflies do when caterpillars cocoon themselves and essentially melt down completely and then reorganize themselves. You know, it's taking advantage of all that raw matter that's already there in, in the organism and, and not having to ingest it. Like I'm trying to think if we've had any autopsies of victims that are extensive, you know, do they look at like, is there liquefaction of the organs? Is there like wasting of the muscles, anything like that? There is, uh, in the director's cut of Alien, this actually was just in the episode that we released as well, there's this sequence at the end, which I'm sure you've seen, where there's this implied thing that, that in fandom people call ovomorphing, because we see that there are two of the crew members who, uh, you know, have been not like killed on the spot, but have been brought up to be what looks like transformed into eggs, into ovomorphs. But um, according to Ridley Scott, what was really happening was they were being digested to be made into material for the egg to grow with. And so, like, one of them is pretty liquefied, um, and the other one who's not quite there yet looks like he might be in the process of becoming so. So that's an example. It's a different part of the life cycle, but there is something about, like, the dissolution of the material into the organic components that are then used to, you know, incubate and feed the new egg, you know? Right, because we're all basically just the same stuff, right? Carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen. I, I pitched in a previous episode, the last time that Alex was on, in Alien 3, we see a, a juvenile alien, a, a step between the chestburster and the full-grown alien, and that's the only time in the movie that it spits acid at someone, but it's already been spitting acid at the metal around it. And so I discovered that I did not come up with this idea. I read it a long time ago on something called the Anchor Point Essays, so I'm giving credit to that, um, that aliens will either spit acid or regurgitate acid, whatever, onto things in their environment to then consume them to take in um, nutrients or whatever the building blocks would need to be. And in, in the three original films, Alien, Aliens, and Alien 3, we have periods where the alien isn't seen in a large enough environment that they could probably do that. They could be out there eating the Nostromo, eating Hadley's Hope, whatever. It's only when we get to Prometheus where we have something hermetically sealed in a, a very small space that, that grows far too big without showing any destruction of the area. But is that a, a thing that could happen? Now that's not my idea, I can, I can critique it, you see. So we definitely see like uh, external digestion, right? Like lots of organisms will spit enzymes. They'll even extrude their stomachs, right? Sea stars will extrude their entire stomach through their mouth onto their prey, liquefy their prey, and then just like slurp everything back in. 
Um, so that's, that's definitely possible. And, and we shouldn't discount the possibility of an organism like the alien consuming things that we wouldn't normally consider food, right? Things like metal and minerals and things like that in there in, in its environment, because there definitely are microorganisms that, that do that. Um, so, so yeah, it's entirely possible that it could be, that it could be using uh, external digestion for, for things in its environment. Yeah. And I was reading about, um, the, the resin that they secrete to make the, the hive as well could also contain digestive enzymes so that when they're cocooned in, it sort of provides, like it sort of liquefies them in that as well. Sort of like the egg morphing that you were talking about that they're not turning into the face hugger will eventually become the face hugger, but they're, they're, they're liquefying to provide nutrients for it, the organic material. So um, there's a lot of crazy theories out there going back to the DNA though. um, And how, you know, in the films we see that whatever the host organism is, we see, um, similarities in the new ch- like whatever the chestburster emerges they take up certain characteristics of the host um you know i was reading and and sort of thinking about how that also could be a form of preventing the host from rejecting the the rapidly growing cells right like the the sort of tumor that becomes the the embryo um, if it's sort of co-ops, like you said, part of the DNA, it won't be recognized as a foreign entity. That might be sort of an advantage as well. I don't know what your thoughts would on that would be. That's a really good point. Uh, because the yeah, the immune system would especially for something like uh uh like when um Ripley's in hibernation, uh like her immune system wouldn't go haywire while this thing is inside her. Um, yeah, I think that's entirely possible. It's interesting because I've always wondered if there's a, an unexploited fragility about the alien, because when you think about like how disease spreads, diseases have to have a balance between how sick they make their host and how quickly they can spread, right? If they make their host too sick, too fast, they won't be able to spread to other hosts. And so the speed with which the alien becomes violent and murderous suggests to me that there is some period of time or some environment in which it would be very fragile. Because if you, you know, if you have a, a, a limited supply of food, you would think that something that's evolved as a predator would be able to pace itself, right? But nothing that we've seen about the alien suggests restraint, right? You know, yeah. when when it's just a food source that right. that we're talking about. So so I wonder, like, what is it? Is it evolved to spread within the population and then just go dormant for? you know, in indescribably long periods of time, uh, that could be one strategy. Um, it doesn't seem that like as an earthling, that doesn't seem very feasible just because, you know, we're, we're, we're limited to this one world, but if you have an, a species that is evolved to go, you know, in interstellar space, then, then that could be entirely feasible, but it just, it, it always has bugged me how fast it becomes a killer and how much it kills because it, that doesn't seem smart to me. And we know that it is smart. But I think you're right in that because, you know, we don't really know the origins of this It and it's, it's covering the vastness of space. It's got to maximize its prey as quickly as possible, because there might only be, uh, you know, in Alien, there were only three people, like they might only encounter one or two hosts at a time, you know, and I think the fact that it rapidly grows in the chest cavity too, like, what exactly is the period of time between Kane's 
infection and then the chest bursting. Do we know exactly? It's never stated, I, but I think I think that most external sources say it's 24 hours. Okay. And it, it seems it shorter, shorter with every film. Right. It does, right? <laughs> or longer, depending. Um, but I think because of its sheer size, the impact it's going to have on the host, it's just, it, it takes as quickly as it can because it knows the host is not, like, to me, I struggle with the concept of that creature not impeding breathing and heart functioning earlier than it did. You know, like that's the one, like Kane would have been struggling earlier, I think, just from the sheer size of that thing bursting through its chest. So I think it's just got to take in as much as it can. And it's, it, it can't go much longer because there's no physical room in there before it mm-hmm. impedes breathing. That was my take on it. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. At least in some of the dark horse lore, uh, you know, there was this idea that, it was constantly secreting chemical cocktails to make you feel like a million bucks when it was about to go, uh, when it was about to burst forth. And so this idea that, you know, you, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know, you wouldn't have those problems because your body's actually operating on a chemical high, uh, I think is, is, is like one of the thoughts, but again, that's like pretty non-canonical. Right. Like you start to get into stuff like labyrinth. Yeah. I have like nine things that I want to ask about, um, but I'm going to pace myself a little bit. Um, it could be that it has something to do with like the hormonal conditions that the egg is born into, meaning that like, so it, it, for, for example, with Cain, right, there's this period before the, the actual you know, like birth starts where like he's kind of in, in a place of like homeostasis. He's sort of okay. And maybe that's because like there's some signal to the embryo that it doesn't need to come out yet, that like it can kind of coexist for a little bit until the host is in a more safer spot or something. And I think their behavior changes a little bit depending on the scenario, right? So for example, on LV426 and then like in the Hadley's Hope incident, right? There's like a mass hive of hosts, right? There's literally hundreds of hosts. So the aliens were able to accomplish the work that they wanted to do very quickly. And one gets the sense that they weren't eating anybody, that they were just basically cocooning people because they there were enough of them to do so. Whereas on the Nostromo, you know, you have this one alien running around that for what it appears to be can't create its own resinous hive material unless you look at the director's cut, which brings a whole other set of questions about it so like in that case that alien's mandate seemed to be to survive right as opposed to like primarily reproduce it was trying to just sort of like get rid of the threat so that it could get to the next place to be able to find more hosts or to to reconnect with a hive or something and i guess it brings me back to something that you said um earlier lolly which i don't remember in what context this was now but you're talking about like the retro virality of the creature and how like it uses and Andy was talking about this too like the host's own genomic code to infiltrate it and of course it, it brings me to this idea of the viral the viral replication cycle and how you can have like you know lysogenic replication and you can have lytic replication and to me like it's almost like the even though this isn't a viral creature it exhibits a lot of these things right so if if it's a lysogenic thing it it has the time to be able to like reproduce at a rate that will not kill off the entire colony. It's it's sort of integrating into the colony. It's creating a hive. It's creating this ecosystem where there's a queen with an ovipositor that connects to an external ovary that, you know, all of this stuff, it, it's the actual structure. I think it wants to be lysogenic in that case, if we can look at it metaphorically speaking. But then you have like the lytic cycle, right? Where it's just like reproducing incredibly fast and it's killing people and it's bursting the hosts right, you know, wide open just for the sake of, you know, living and, and surviving as quickly as it can. So it, it's almost like it almost like it, it switches modes depending on the conditions that it's in. What do you what do you think about that? Well, I think for me, I think the question that I would ask is, do they have a queen or not? Like if if there's if there's n- no one there that can produce egg pods, then there's no reason to stick around, right? It's like locusts, just feed, get energy and move on, right? But if there's a queen there and there's enough food, then it's time to set up shop. So that that to me would probably be the defining characteristic. And, you know, there are plenty of uh, hive organisms that we have 
where queens are not produced by other queens. Queens are produced by workers, right? So like in, in certain types of hymenoptera and bees, the, the worker bees will secrete specific hormones into certain egg pods and one of those will become a queen, right? So it, it's, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be something where they have to join up with a bigger hive or they have to find a queen. Just could be like, oh, here's a planet, lots of people, lots of food. We can set up a queen here. Um, what do you think in terms of options for hosts? Like you were saying, do they just find any host or are they more selective in, in who they choose to be hosts, right? Like we all know nature loves variation, right? And so if we're going with the whole DNA, they sort of co-opt DNA, it would make sense if they tried to find as much varied hosts as possible. Right. So do you think they are selective if they have options or do they just go for any living organism? Uh, I would think that the deciding factor would be the mass of the organism. Right. So are there certain like, for example, is it do they only are they only triggered by warm blooded things? Right. So like if a if a Komodo dragon leaned over the egg pod, would it trigger it or not? You know. Uh, I would love to see like a like a beaver alien. <laughs> that would be hilarious. Be adorable is what that would be. Oh my god! Or like, <laughs> or like a giraffe. Draw that. <laughs> like oh, that yeah, would be awesome. Giraffe. <laughs> but it's probably mass, right? Because yeah. if they're you know if it if it launches itself at a you know a gopher, it, there's probably not going to be enough there. Uh, to to feed the transformation, so it's probably just got to be something big enough uh, that it can survive on. And the way that the alien seems to look at Jones in the first film, size him up, and say, "Nah," you know, um, obviously, right? We don't know whether the alien was was really looking for hosts in that film. It depends on which version you're watching. But there's always that enigmatic, like, "What are you doing, looking at the cat there?" And then the cat's perfectly safe in the next scene. So. I think it just recognizes another apex predator. Just, you know, game recognizes game. One of the, um, one of the topics that we talked about earlier was, of course, the idea that if if this thing kills too fast, then, you know, that's actually really bad for its spread. I think that that may be controversial here. Uh, I think that that speaks really well to it being a bioengineered weapon system. Uh, you know, if we were to look at the warehouses in Prometheus, not as storage of random creatures and, and graves, but as storage of weapon systems that maybe the engineers wanted to deploy. You know, I, I, I think that, uh, yeah, that the alien has some, some, some fairly maladapted, uh, qualities when it comes to spreading. And that might be a good thing because if it were a weapon system, it functions on containment. So early on in the script of Alien, the idea was that the creature only lived for about 48 hours and that when we see it in the Narcissus, Narcissus at the end, it's actually dying. It's lived its full life and it's going to, it's going to uh, expire. And I think that plays very much into it being a, um, a biological weapon because you could drop these things on a populated planet and 48 hours later, either everyone's dead or there's a whole new batch of eggs that have been made from if you follow the director's cut and it's feeding new eggs out of these, out of these corpses. On the other hand, though, I just want to throw this out there. And this is going back to the early dark horse comics. You could also look at it as this creature comes from a home world that has both an abundant source of hosts. So some lesser species that it, that it preys on and simultaneously an abundant, an abundance of, um, predators that feed on it. Like the, it's in the middle of, um, a chain, you know, and it's kept in check by something larger while constantly being able to, to churn through some sort of smaller 
or, or less powerful creature. And it's only when you take it out of that, um, that situation that it becomes this rampant killing machine where all it does is just kill, kill, kill because in its <laughs> mind, it should have more, more food coming, more hosts coming and something is immediately coming for it. So that's so, so it's an invasive species. One hundred percent. I was, was going to say invasive species, exactly, which makes sense. Yeah, that it's in disequilibrium. It's just like yeah. So it's just the cane toad of the of the galaxy. We need a rabbit-proof fence. Is what you're saying? <laughs> I would be kind of disappointed if it was a bioengineered weapon. I think part of the thing that makes to me, alien so scary is that there's that there's these things just lurking out there in the universe. You know, that that they're on you can't predict when you're gonna run across one. You can think that you're prepared, but there's things that are out there that are so far beyond your understanding, so far beyond your level of preparedness that you're just completely screwed. I agree. I think the alienness of it is what precisely makes it terrifying, right? That we don't know. And I I, I mean, you know, going back to the whole the original, I, I just love not knowing what the space jockey is, right? I, I We've talked about that endlessly, but it's that unknown that will always be terrifying. Um, and that it is a bio, like purely biological force, because we know there are, things that exist in nature that are utterly horrific, right? And I think that's scarier. But I am intrigued by the bioengineered as well. Both are terrifying because we know humans, anytime humans try to control anything, it's terrifying as well. <laughs> I mean, I'm I, I I'm not I'm not gonna say that I'm like pro bioweapon. I'm just gonna say that, you know, uh, that certainly seems to be what Scott was going for in Prometheus. Right. But it's worth noting, we might not know very many definitive things about the space jockey, but we do know at a minimum that something erupted out of its chest cavity, right? So if we take that at what it appears to be, then at least we can see that even if this were some bioengineered weapon that this jockey were, you know, bringing around the galaxy, right. that it did ultimately get the better of him, perhaps because he didn't, I'm gendering this space jockey, but because perhaps because the jockey didn't understand what it was dealing with, right? Um, like the engineers didn't because the, the downfall of the engineers on at least multiple planets were these creatures or the things that, you know, allowed the creatures to grow in the first place, whether it be the, the, you know, the black goo or et cetera. So it seems like it's something, and David, of course, is trying to create them as well, and that leads to quite a lot of chaos. It seems like something where even if this is some sort of bioengineered weapon force, like it's people getting it wrong because they're trying to make a facsimile of something that's deeper and older than them that they can't really quite understand. So like the silos on the planet in Prometheus, like that that could be an example of that, right? Of like a failed experiment to weaponize these things that they didn't couldn't actually do because they kind of predated their understanding, you know? That was quite the tear. <laughs> I, I want to get back to something quick uh, that's come up a couple of times. So the, another topic that comes up sometimes is what they're eating, right? And with the order to come up tonight, Alex mm. mentioned this in our previous episode. This is something that I've, I've brought up many times because to me, there's only one moment in the entire alien saga where there's there definitively is an alien creature eating somebody. I know there's a scene in alien three that you could pretend potentially look at as being eating. To me, it looks more like mauling and attacking for what it's worth. But, you know, we see the neomorph and covenant eating somebody eating Rosenthal, right? Like that's pretty definitively eating. It's also a different organism. It's not the, you know, the xenomorphic XX one to one creature. It's a separate species. That's analogous to it. Right. So to me, like, I don't even look at the creature as necessarily eating, you know, carbon-based food because the amount of calories that shit would have to be taking in to be able to sustain that life cycle, it would be, I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of calories per minute, like crazy amounts of growth would have to be facilitated, which would mean access to like infinite stores of food, let alone the digestive capacity to deal with all of that. So to me, it makes more sense. And this is part of why I was so excited we got to do this episode because Alex was mentioning this idea um, that Lolly also mentioned earlier, which is like, what if they're not actually eating animals? <laughs> like, what if they're getting nutrients from other things in the environment? And I'm wondering, can you tech, tell us a little more about some of your thoughts on that? So 
so it still doesn't solve the problem of calories. Like even if they were eating things in their environment, uh, like there's, (laughs) I just had the funny thought, like we've never seen alien poop. Like how come we've never seen any scat? Like these environments, that's funny. Um, Maybe that's what all that resin is. (laughs) There you go. There you go. So they have to, you know, they, they, even if they're, you know, they're eating the railings, they're eating the stairs, they're just, you know, they're, they're eating the metal of the spaceships. They're still having to have raw building material. They still, as far as we know, have an organic body. So they would have to be ingesting organic material in some way. Right. I mean, is it, I mean, are we, are we arguing that they're inorganic? I think they're biomechanical, so you know, I don't know how much the bio is bio and how much the mechanical is mechanical, but they they appear to be maybe more than you know biological organisms, right? But there are, I mean, just having metals in their body doesn't necessarily like. Okay, so let me let me back up. How would you define biomechanical? Biomechanical. So, uh, speaking as myself, I would define it as the aesthetic of appearing to have both biological and mechanical componentry. Speaking biologically, like how it fits into fandom or or whatever, I I would characterize it as a biological organism that exhibits characteristics of mechanical devices. That's kind of convoluted way to put it. I don't know. Somebody else want to give it a shot? (laughs) That's terrible. So what? So what mechanical devices? they nothing earthbound but to me they exhibit characteristics that i associate with machinery and by that i mean things like like self-similar repeating patterns um things that look like they could be wires external skeletons a lot of things that you see in insects right but the inner um, jaw the inner jaw has almost like a piston yeah mechanism to it but of course, you have mantis shrimps and things that have the ability. That, I guess that's that's a really good point, Lolly. Is that a lot of the things that I think we ascribe to being mechanical are not? They're they're just things that are appear to be mechanical, but they're actually in nature. So maybe they're not, you know, mechanical at all. Even even if you're like talking about their exterior, like oh, they're shiny, you know, they they look like they have metal. Like we have organisms on Earth that bioaccumulate metal. Look at the iron snail. That thing is wild yeah take a second and and google (laughs) that thing is insane it actually had like grows like little like it looks like plate armor and it's from the metal deposits in the food that it consumes it's crazy then it's shell it's growing on its skin this thing is fucking awesome i'm just gonna say i looked it up right now weird right yeah everybody (laughs) needs to look up it's also called a scaly foot gastropod or a chrysomalian squamiferum i recommend you google that right now so uh you know like if if i saw that thing in a science fiction movie having never seen it before i would be like well come on that's ridiculous (laughs) that would never happen right it clearly looks like something that's been bioengineered so I think that nature is far weirder than we give it credit for, and especially nature that is go- that is going to be evolving in environments that we have a hard time uh, comprehending. So I, I guess I, I guess I just don't, you know, like nothing when it comes to uh, the alien organism, like nothing really surprises me because it's the strangeness of it right. that makes it so cool and so scary. So maybe I'm off base because I don't have the science background, but the fact that the aliens in the second film make their hive right underneath a nuclear reactor, is there anything we can take from that? Is there any way that they could be taking in radiation or, you know, is there some, is there some other way that they could be getting energy? I don't know. Help me out. I always took it as sort of like an incubator of sorts. Um, my theory is they, once the chestburster, uh, eru- you know, erupts from the, the host, they then consume the host, like what's left of the host. To me, that's the organic material that they need, right? The person's dead. It's still there. And then they basically become, you know, 
the they they break down all that material and they use that. We never really quite see what happens after the eruption if they have access. I don't know about the in, initial one because they didn't have access to Kane, right? His body was ejected, uh, jettisoned from the ship. But, um, you know, they do. And if we take away the egg morphing scene, he could have very well done that to Brett and consumed Brett you know, as part of it and maybe not and realize, hey, there's seven, you know, I saw different life forms here. I might have to consume one and then use a host as another. So I always assumed they kind of utilized whatever was left over the scraps, if you will, and and didn't leave anything. Actually, there's there's evidence for what Andy's saying that I had never thought of, but there are skeletons in the cocoon, in the in the hive, in aliens. They're not I don't believe they're visible in the movie, but in the behind the scenes photos of all of the corpses that they made, some of them are skeletal and it's only been a few weeks. It's at, at most a month um, that the colony has been like that. So the aliens ate the flesh right off the bone. Yeah, that would make the most sense to me. And I, I agree with Andy. I kind of always assumed that they, they put their hive there for the warmth because it's a relatively harsh environment, but Having said that, Christian, the short answer to your question is yes, maybe. Because, like, what are the organisms on Earth that absorb energy? Plants, plants and algae, right? Photosynthetic organisms. They're absorbing energy from the sun, which is radiation, right? Physical light is radiation. So nuclear radiation is just another form of radiation. So, so how does that work? So they're photosynthesized. So photo means light, synthesis means to build. So they're building molecules using the energy from light. So what happens is the light enters their cells. It excites pigment molecules, which pigments simply absorb visible light. It excites the electrons in those molecules. And that sets off a chain reaction where electrons flow through the molecules in the plant's membranes. And eventually, and, and when those electrons are moving, what they're doing is they're moving energy, right? Energy is moving with those electrons. Where those electrons ultimately end up is in ATP molecules, which can then be used for metabolic processes to build sugar, which is what photosynthesis ultimately does. So if they have a way to absorb either the heat energy from that nuclear reactor or the nuclear radiation, that's coming off of the molecules in that reactor to set up some kind of similar electron transport chain transfer of energy to a storable molecule in their body, then yes, they could be absorbing energy from the environment. And we see that in deep sea, like around deep sea hydrothermal vents, right? You have bacteria that are chemosynthetic. There's no light down there. So they are absorbing energy from the environment in that way. The electron transport chain. Love it. I never would have, I never thought of that. That was excellent. I like, I like both. Yeah. ETC. We have some bacteria that exist preferentially in radioactive spaces, right? Right. I don't remember what they're called, but I mean, Molly, you and I talked a long time ago during the cold forge about how potentially the black goo is an extremophile. Right. We talked about archaea. And, and how it could be like something that is not bacterial at all, but, um, but just an archaea that loves extreme environments. We know so little about them. They're so weird. Christian, you're going to say something? Well, si since we have Lolly and Alex on here, could the two of you just go over is the Cold Forge presented probably the most beautiful synthesis of the classic trilogy life cycle and the prequel film life cycle where you were able to take what appear at, at first glance to be somewhat non non-compatible elements and made something really interesting out of it could you just give us a quick like what what you came up with for that I'm well, going to let Alex take the lead on this one cuz <laughs> it was a lot of phone calls about like quick tell me an organism that does this Quick, tell me an organism. <laughs> I mean, so 
Yeah, you had written an article or been quoted in an article for io9, I want to say, about the potential realism of the alien life cycle through the concept of alternation of generations. And I had seen Prometheus, and I wanted to try and explain away this black goo. And so, because I felt like this is where Scott was going, based on what I saw with Numi Rapace getting impregnated with a starfish. It was a weird time for everyone, okay? And and so, um, yeah, it was really important to me to try and reconcile those two things. And so I wanted to know sort of from you how we could come up with this two animal theory, this idea that this thing is is sort of in a semi-symbiotic relationship between the face hugger and the black goo. And um, that was a lot of discussion of real world precedents. And another thing that we were working on a lot of, uh, if I, if I can, was also the, the binomial nomenclature of the creature. Like, what do you call it properly? Um, because previous nomenclatures had been really disappointing and that gets into the question of, you know, a lot of people saying like, well, I don't know if it really qualifies as a carbon-based life form and stuff like that. And what was great was Prometheus, for better or worse, gave us a framework to say like, actually, what if everything is the same set of carbon-based life forms? <laughs> right, because they did their whole ancient astronaut thing. Uh Anyway, uh, yeah, what, what do you remember about that time? Because, I mean, I, I definitely remember hammering all that stuff out over hours and hours and hours. I think it started with the conversation, I think you called me up and you asked me about the scene in Alien where uh, the facehugger is, you know, the facehugger is on the first victim and and they have a scan of like what's going on in her throat. Do you remember that scene? And, you know, you kind of see the the little tail end of the face hugger moving and, and we kind of had right. a discussion about like, what is that? Is that like, you know, is it, does it actually lay an egg? Do we ever see it lay an egg? Because I, 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 know, I was like, if, yeah, I was like, if it's not laying an embryo, then I, I'm, I'm black Gouda alien in one step. <laughs> <laughs> And then, yeah, so that's kind of how that whole conversation started. And I remember being really resistant to that because I was kind of having uh, like a Mandela effect where I was like, I was like, of course, there's an egg in there. Like, why wouldn't there be an egg in there? I, I never I just kind of had taken it for granted that that that's, you know, it's a it's a vertebrate uh, that would seem to be the natural way to transfer this thing. Uh, and so you really got me thinking about, well, what if it's microscopic instead? Yeah. And I, I was I was a little bit happy to see that in Covenant, though I won't say that like you know, with the the moats where they infect you through your ear membrane and stuff like that. I think that putting this infectious disease architecture on top of the alien though makes it scary in a way that I don't think that that <clears throat> I mean, if this thing is a fully grown adult version of a microorganism's infection, the question is, at what point does it begin shedding its own microorganisms, right? Like, surely any anyone who went through a nest is at some sort of extreme risk of infection, you know, that kind of stuff. So from an evolutionary perspective, that would be detrimental, right? Like, and, and those things certainly happen where an organism becomes hyper-specialized or it's, you know, it, it has genetic, its genes give it abilities that backfire. That certainly has probably happened millions of times throughout natural history. Um, or where they have a highly specialized ability and then their environment changes or they go into a new environment where it suddenly isn't helpful anymore. Um, I think that the, the specificity of the life forms is what would prevent that from happening because each 
even though, even though the microorganism, the face hugger, the chest burster, the adult, even though they all may be genetically identical, not all of their genes are turned on at the same time. Not every gene in every form is active simultaneously. So by having a control mechanism like Hox genes where you can turn on and turn off or turn on genes in a sequence, you can control, well, by you, I mean, the organism can control the abilities of each different form. Because if it, if, if you have a, an organism like this that would just randomly shed DNA into its environment that could infect everything in its surroundings, the whole environment would just be in complete disequilibrium. I buy that for <laughs> sure. So do we think each life form is genetically identical? Identical, because if we're right, because if the face hugger implants a path, like sort of basically a pathogen that that is like a tumor that sort of takes on some of the DNA. Like, won't the chestburster have a varied DNA from the face hugger? Is that what the actual biology is? Is that established? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's established in that we see that they're different, right? We see that the, the forms change from one film to the next, that they're slightly different. But you're right. You're right. If it's incorporating DNA from uh, the host that it's in, then it wouldn't. If you were to take a genetic sample right. from an adult versus a face hugger, they wouldn't be genetically identical. So what if it's sort of, is there any such thing as like a meta-organism, meaning that the, the 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 branches, the various branches of xenomorphism are not actually compatible with one another, but they're always sort of trying to arrange themselves in a similar way. Uh, and so they're 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 it's it's almost like they survive by burning out an area. Uh, I'm not really I'm not really making a ton of sense here. Like what would <laughs> but, happen? if two different branches of Xenomorph ended up on the same planet. Right. And like in the comics, there was like they war fight. would happen. And I'm, you know, again, I don't know. That depends on what the story needs. Right. But, but yeah. Lolly earlier when you, you used Moss as an example, and you said how in one stage when it's all green, that's the sexual reproduction, but then it makes the, a pod that's asexual. Is that what we're saying? The face hugger is, is, it's still the alien life form, but it's in a different phase of its reproductive cycle. But if you were to take this is crazy gonzo, if you could take a DNA sample from a face hugger, not a yeah, yeah, a face hugger, and you could unlock its its genetic code, could you make a full grown alien? Does it contain within itself? Or or am it I losing should. the picture? No, it should. I mean, the face hugger should be genetically identical to the queen that produced it. Right. Right. The queen produces an egg. The egg produces a face hugger. It should be genetically identical to the queen that produced it. So, yeah, I mean, if you had if you had the complete genome and you knew which genes to trigger, that's that's the thing about like cloning that people always forget. Like it, it's not just a matter of having the DNA. You also need to know like which chemical signals to have and when <laughs> it's very carefully timed. So in, in hypothetically, yes, if you had a complete genome. Could you produce uh, an adult xenomorph? Yes. But what would you grow it in? Like you'd have to you'd have to essentially know how to mimic the life cycle. It's funny because in the first film, we're specifically told that the facehugger we're shown the facehugger has acid for blood. And then we then assume that the full grown alien likewise has acid for blood. And in later films, that's proven. But actually, in the first film, when Ripley shoots the alien at the end with a harpoon gun, it just sticks in the in the thing and no acid comes out. So if you just take the first film, the full-grown aliens don't even have acid for blood. That's just a facehugger thing. But the, the main point is that we assume that the characteristics of one carry over to the other forms, even though they're they're wildly different. It's very... I don't know. It's It's, it's, it's fascinating. And I feel like this conversation has helped me understand it better without taking away the mystery. As crazy as that is, I feel like we're just deepening the lore and, and not losing any of the horror. So that's great. 
Is there a chance that they're using the gestational process to further their genetic diversity? So stop them from having two similar lines, in fact, by taking taking chromosomes from their uh, hosts. I, I definitely think that. I think they're trying to vary their genetic makeup as much as possible, which is why I think they're going to take any host they can. You know, like in Alien 3 with the dog slash ox, right? Um, you know, obviously it has to be large enough. I guess the dog was large enough, not Jonesy. Um, but no, I absolutely think variation is is part of the drive there. Um, you know, and and taking advantage of the situation and just and and with Ripley knowing that she had the queen in her, I guess we didn't talk about that. I just want to talk about that really quickly about how her gestational period was much longer. And I guess that's how she knew um, she was holding the queen, but she would have to, right? If that's the last egg left, right? From wh- wherever that came, it would have to be the queen. What are your thoughts on that really quickly? Uh, so to answer Alex's question real quick, I think, yes, they probably are seeking to diversify their DNA, but not consciously. Uh, I, you know, we, uh, right, most, right. most right. organisms <laughs> seek genetic right. diversity in their population, but not consciously. Um, yeah, I, if it, it makes sense that if it was the last egg, that that would be the queen. We see that happen in, um, like in spider populations, you know, if there's no more, if there's no more males, one of them will become a male, you know, that kind of thing. Um, uh, and that happens in lots of different kinds of fish as well, right? They'll be, they'll be triggered to like, so it could be that a proximity thing if they, if they don't have proximity to other eggs, if they are isolated, if they don't have the chemical input, then, then that's the trigger to become a queen. That makes sense. I just think it's it's such a testament to the beauty of this organism and this story that here we are 35 years later dissecting the minutia of something that was created by a bunch of guys who went to film school, not medical school. And it still holds up. You know, it's still it, like the richness of this organism, of this idea. Uh, it still holds up and that's amazing to me. I just think it speaks to the impact that horror, like body horror and just biology in general, like biology and nature is, can be horrific. Right. And I think it just speaks to that innate fear that's built in to our own DNA of, of the natural world, you know, the awe, the beauty, but also the terror of it. And I don't think that ever leaves you. It's like, it's built in. Amen. I know uh, we're getting late here and we're about to wrap up, but uh, this has been such a fascinating conversation and just kind of putting a button on it for a second. You know, Lolly, in the beginning, you were talking about the life cycle of of, uh, lepidopterids and butterflies and how they use cocoons, right? And about how, like, I think back to what Christian was just saying, one of the beautiful things here is like, we understand what happens inside that life cycle to a degree, but it still doesn't really make sense to us. And there are things about it that we, we just can't comprehend, like that it goes in with one, you know, genomic identity and emerges with the same genomic identity because it's the same material. But does that material recognize itself anymore? Does it have any memory of its former self? Like what's actually happening? So it's so one of those things where the more you understand about it, the more frightening it becomes because you realize there are answers that you might not be able to get around to. And I think part of why this life cycle between, you know, ovomorph to facehugger to chestburster to full grown adult to queen to praetorian guard to all the different things that, that we get in the expanded universe to the different, you know, manifestations of the life cycle on other planets and on other ecosystems. Like all these things speak to this idea that becomes more frightening the more you allow yourself to think about it. And I think that's where the accelerant or the pathogen, the black goo falls into it too. It's one of those things where like you can look at it as a bioweapon or you can look at it as an extremophilic, you know, adapted liquid or something. You can look at it as all sorts of things, but it always becomes more frightening the more you consider it because of what Andy is saying, which is like the body horror implicit in the reality that it represents. And um, 
my mind is swimming with things that I wish we had time to talk about. So we might be back in touch for another episode because we're a bunch of nerds who can't get enough of this. Um, I want to thank especially Alex for coming on yet again. And also for connecting us with Lolly and uh, and Lolly. For- <laughs> Lolly did all the talking, <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's great because yeah. she was amazing. <laughs> so thank you, Lolly, it's just so much for making the time for us for coming on, and also for helping Alex to produce two of the great books in the history of alien, oh. you know, literature, as well as a bunch of other great shit that we've read and enjoyed tremendously. That I know you've also been a part of, but in the context of this show tonight, um, you know. Uh, into Krebus and the Cold Forge are just two of my favorite books ever. And I know that you were an instrumental part of that. So thank you from, from all of us for being here tonight. Thank you so much for having me on. I really had a great time and I would love to come back and talk to you some more about this. Absolutely. We have so many more questions. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much uh, for being here. And, and uh, listeners, if you have questions also, you know, and you want to see a part two of this someday, please do send those to us because we'd love to come up with like, this is a chance to really get some cool conversation going. So please send them in. You can do perfect organism podcast, gmail.com. You can do the contact, but link on our website, you can find a social media, um, but but keep the conversation going because this is so fascinating. Have a wonderful do a clip night, show. Do a <laughs> clip show. Show them clips from the movie and then have them debate about it. Come on, <laughs> ah, I like that. We'll get to work on it. Thank you, Alex. Have a great night, yeah. everybody. All right. Good night. All right. Good Bye. night. Bye. To find out more information about Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please go to www.perfectorganism.com. If you would like to support the show, please go to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.